want to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 4, going through a series in the first few chapters in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 4 this morning. Jeremiah chapter 4. I'm in a place in my life where when I put something away for safekeeping, shortly thereafter, I can't remember for the life of me where I put it. Uh, Have some of you found yourself, don't need a show of hands, found a place yourself, uh, you're yourself in a place like that, well, I, I think it's true. Like uh, maybe putting a $20 bill in my coat jacket. And then uh, a few weeks, a few days, maybe a month or a year goes by and I reach in my coat jacket and wow, there's a $20 bill. What a blessing. It's a blessing from the Lord. <laughs> uh, well, it is. But I had something to do with it because I had forgotten I had put it in there many weeks and months before. Well, in our chapter, the Lord wants to bless. The Lord wants to bless the people of Israel. And yet, there's something they need to do. Now, we don't do works to receive the blessings of the Lord. But it always involves something... uh, That has to do with us. And here, God wants to work in their life. God wants to bless them. But there are some things that they're doing or not doing that are hindering, listen carefully, hindering what God would want them to do. And in the midst of uh, this chapter, and many chapters, as we look in the first few chapters in Jeremiah, the call of judgment upon the nation of Israel... There is yet a call for them to come back. Come come back. Here's how you can draw near to the Lord. Here's how you can find that blessing, that wholeness in life. So I want to talk about that this morning. And that's found in the first four verses of Jeremiah chapter 4. Now, our hindrance, uh, excuse me, our hindrance, our theme is the way we've been doing this is we've been kind of reading through the chapter and looking at some major thoughts and themes and then focusing in on one specific aspect of the chapter. And the reason, just to explain why we're doing it this way, is Jeremiah, through a period of years, preached a series of sermons and prophecies of destruction and judgment upon the people of Israel. That was through a series of years. Now, I am not going to spend... Uh, 52 weeks or whatever of judgment. I'll, ju- I'll kill you. You'll, just, you'll die. Uh, now, this was preached over a period of a long time. But buried within these chapters are some real nuggets, some real treasured vessels that can't just be passed over quickly because they're nestled in this series of messages and prophetic Utterances that Jeremiah got. So we will look at the context, which we're going to do, but we'll focus in on these little, oh, these, these words of life that are found within the general context of messages in Jeremiah, primarily that judgment is coming. So let's first take a look at the six major themes or six major thoughts as we read through the chapter, and then we'll focus in on our one uh, section. Verse 
1, chapter 4. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, then you shall return to me. And if you'll put away your detested things from my presence and will not waver, and you will swear as the Lord lives in truth and justice and righteousness, then the nations will bless themselves in him, and in him they will glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, and remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire, and burn with none to quench it, because of the evil of your deeds. First major thought is a way back to the Lord. It's a way back to the Lord. And that's what we'll be focusing on in just a few minutes. A way back to the Lord. Second theme is found in verses 5 through 9. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet in the land, cry aloud and say, Assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities. Lift up a standard toward Zion. Seek refuge. Do not stand still. For I am bringing evil from the north. A great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. For this, put on sackcloth, lament, and wail. For the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. And it shall come about in that day, declares the Lord, that the heart of the king and the heart of the princes will fail, and the priests will be appalled, and the prophets will be astounded. Second major thought is an announcement of coming judgment. Coming judgment is coming upon them as a lion would attack them. Verse 10. So verses 5 through 9. 5 through 9, the announcement of coming judgments. Verse 10. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely thou hast utterly deceived this people. And Jerusalem saying, You will have peace whereas a sword touches the throat. Here, a single idea is a people deceived. Now, this is interesting. He's just said that judgment is coming, and yet he says, uh, yet, Lord, you're, you're allowing the people to be deceived. And the idea there is that the false prophets, and we'll see that as we go through the book of Jeremiah, were pe- preaching what? Everything's going to be fine. It's, everything's going to be all right. And the people were deceived by the false prophets. And they were giving those prophecies in the name of the Lord. And so Jeremiah struggles with this concept of him, God, allowing these prophets to prophesy falsely. And this is a personal struggle that he has with what the Lord is doing. People deceived. Verse 11. In that time it will be said to this people unto Jerusalem, a scorching wind from the bare heights in the wilderness, in the direction of my daughter, of my people, not to winnow and not to cleanse. A wind too strong for this will come at my command. But I, now I will also pronounce judgments against them. Behold, he goes up like clouds and his chariots like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined." Wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem, that you may be saved. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims wickedness from the Mount of Ephraim. Report it to the nations now. Proclaim over Jerusalem. 
Besiegers come from a far country. Lift up their voices against the city of Judah. Like watchmen of a field, they are against her round about. Because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your ways and your deeds have brought these things to you. This is your evil, how bitter, how it has touched your heart. The consequences of their evil ways have come upon them. Verses 11 through 18. The consequences of their evil ways. Verse 19. My soul, my soul, I am in anguish. Oh, my heart, my heart is pounding in me. I cannot be silent because you have heard, O my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Disaster on disaster is proclaimed, for the whole land is devastated. Suddenly my tents are devastated, my curtains in an instant. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish, they know me not. They are stupid children, they have no understanding, they are shrewd to do evil, But to do good, they do not know. Here we have a personal reaction from Jeremiah. He pauses and he speaks about his own anguish in watching his people and sudden destruction coming upon them. A personal reaction from Jeremiah. Notice in verse 22, the Lord kind of breaks through and he says, My children are stupid. They know how to do evil, but they don't know how to do good. Verse 23. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was formless and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, behold, they, qu- they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were pulled down before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not ex execute a complete destruction for this the earth shall mourn and the heavens above be dark because I have spoken I have purposed and I will not change my mind nor will I turn from it at the sound of the horsemen and bowmen every city flees they go into the thickets and climb among the rocks every city is forsaken and no man dwells in them in you O desolate one what will you do Although you dress in scarlet and although you decorate yourself with ornaments of gold, although you enlarge your eyes with paint, in vain you make yourself beautiful. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. For I heard a cry of a woman in labor and the anguish of one giving birth to her first child. The cry of the daughter of Zion grasping for, gasping for breath, stretching out her hands saying, Ah, Woe is me, for I faint before murderers. A series of illustrations of the coming judgment. A series of illustrations. A lady about to give birth. Jerusalem dolling itself up for its false idols. And yet the very nations that it sought to worship, their gods, has now turned upon them and will bring destruction. People in the smaller cities hiding in the thickets in the rocks trying to get away from the Babylonians. And his description, the whole land will be desolate. Here we have a series of illustrations of the coming judgment. Okay. In the midst of all this judgment, in the midst of all this judgment, the Lord calls them back 
calls them back. And that's what we want to focus in on verses 1 through 4. He says there's three specific actions that need to be taken as they come back to the Lord. And I want to look at them this morning. The first is to put away detested things, plow that so there is good fruit, circumcise yourself spiritually. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Put away your detested things, he says. Put away your detested things. Now, what does this mean for them? What does it mean, detested? Well, obviously, if we look at the context, he's talking about their false worship. The idols, the idols of Baal and Moloch that they had been involved with. He says, put them away. He detested the things that they were doing. He says, put them away from me. I detest them. Hmm. Now, what would, in the application, how would that apply to us? Well, we can say, well, we all have, we have, we don't have a god of Baal or Molech in our house. We don't worship them, but we do have gods. And, and that's, a, that's a good transfer of application. But I want to speak about this word where it says, put away, put away the detested things. The things that I detest in your life, put them away. I want to look at that phrase as we go through this passage. Now, I was looking for a word that was parallel in the New Testament that comes alongside of the Hebrew word. And I found it in the Greek word, Iro. Iro, A-I-R-O. And it means to just put things away. Okay, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And I want, to, I want to point out something to you. As a matter of fact, I want to point two things out. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. This is a very common word, Iro. It's used extensively in the Gospels and not so much in the Epistles. As I was looking at this word in the concordance, I saw that there's one spot, there's one place where it talks to us about things that we should put out of our lives. Only one spot. Now, I could be wrong, but I, I noticed that in all the Englishman Greeks concordance, it found and it lands on this verse. Look what it says. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, what? Be put away. That's the word. I wrote. Be put away from you, along with all malice. And then, as I was reading that verse, I said, isn't that just that one verse, one verse where he commands us to put those things away. And then I thought of Proverbs chapter 6. Do you remember? There are six things the Lord hates. Seven words of abomination. He detests these things. Let me read them. There are six things which the Lord hates. Seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, and a false witness who utters lies. And the number seven, the one who spreads strife among the brothers. Did you see the parallel? There's, there's, they're very, very close. That which he tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, he tells us in Proverbs 6, he hates these things. He detests them. And he calls us to put them out of our lives. 
That's the first application. The second application is as I, I was looking at this word, it is in the imperative mode. What do I mean by that? An imperative is a what? Command. This is not a suggestion. <laughs> this is not one of the suggestions. Well, you might want to think about it. This is a command. He, he empirically commands us to put these things out of our life. I thought, oh, well, that fits the context. Not a problem there. But I looked, I looked even closer at the word. And it's in the passive voice. Oh. What does that mean, Pastor Neil? Passive means we don't do it, but it is done to us or for us. And wait a minute, Pastor Neil. You mean he's commanding us to do something that we don't do. That's exactly what he's saying. A literal translation is of this verse would be, allow, allow these things to be put away from you. And notice the translation correctly in the New American Standard, the word let. Do you see that? Let these things be put away from you. That could be the literal translation. You're saying, oh, now wait a minute, Neil. Now you've got me really confused. Who takes these things away from us? Well, you know that. That's an easy question. Who is that? It's Jesus. Jesus takes these things away from us. But the question is, how? How are these things taken away from us? Well, that's a good question. Two aspects. Two aspects. Judiciously. Judicially. What do I mean by that? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says what? If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Everything has become new. When we're born again and we accept Christ, he is no longer against us, but he is what? For us. We are now his children. We're his sons and daughters. And he doesn't look at our actions, but he sees us through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He no longer deals with us as those people who do these things, but he deals with us as his sons and daughters. So judiciously, he takes those away. But also, experientially. Experientially. Now, what do you mean by that, Pastor Neil? Well, let's look at a few verses. Romans chapter 5. Let me look at Romans 5. And you can turn there, or I can just read it. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith. Ah, there it is. There it is. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. Okay? That's the judicial part of his action. Through whom we also have obtained the introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. And then he goes on. He says, and not only this, but we have what we also exalt in our tribulation and our trials. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, here it is, brings about proven character. Proven character. Freeing us, freeing us from bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. There's one. Um, The next passage is James. James chapter 1. Let's look at that for just a moment. James chapter 1. 
Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, various troubles, various problems. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander, and malice being taken out of you. The other last passage is in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, where it says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Why? Yet to those who have been trained afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness, being freed from bitterness, wrath, Anger, clamor, put away from you all those things of malice. You see, he wants us to put away the things that he hates. And we do that as one. We accept Christ into our lives. And then we allow him, through the trials of life, to gently take those things away from us. You see, James says... Don't see trials and problems as your enemies, but what? Embrace them as beloved friends. (laughs) Because they are in the process of cleansing us, of taking out of us the immaturity and selfishness that so often produce those things that we read in Ephesians chapter 4. Put away the detested things. Okay. The second thing that we see in verse, um, in chapter 4 of Jeremiah, is found in verse 3, where he says, Break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. I've put put that in encapsulated form. Plow so that there's good fruit. Plow so that there's good fruit. Now, as I read this particular section, I thought of in the New Testament, what section? Matthew 13, the parable of the soils. Do you remember the the parable? Jesus said, a sower went out to sow, and some of the seed fell on by the roadside, on the hard ground, and the birds came and ate it. Some of the seed fell among the rocky places where there was no depth of soil, and when the sun came up, the little seedlings just died. Other seed was sown among the thorns, and the thorns choked out fruit. But some seed fell upon the good ground. And it produced 30, 60, and 100 fold. Now, the seed being us, I mean the soil being us, and what kind of, where we're at. And the seed being what? The Word of God. Okay, when we looked at that, I thought about this. Now, take a look at what he says. He says two distinct things. Plow up the fallow ground. The fallow ground. Now, what does that mean? Now, we're not money, us are not farmers. We don't know what fallow ground is. Now, it doesn't mean the hard soil, nor does it mean the rocky soil. It means good soil. Good soil. But what is fallow ground, Pastor Neil? Well, if you know anything about fallow ground, fallow ground is good ground that has the potentiality for fruit, but it hasn't been turned over. It hasn't been planted. And it's laying fallow. There's nothing going on. It's good soil, but it has not been prepared and the seed has not been sown, and so that's 
Nothing. Nothing's going on. It's good ground. Now, if you know anything about Jeremiah's time, his granddaddy was a king called Manasseh, an evil, wicked man. And his daddy wasn't too much better. And for over 50 years, these two kings allowed the temple to be desecrated and filled with idols and all sorts of uncleanness. And what happened to the word of God? It was lost. It was in the temple, but nobody really paid attention to it. And it wasn't until Josiah, several years into his ministry, you remember? They found the word of God and they, oh, and they went and read it. And they, oh, they were terrified by what it, read, what it, what it said. Do you remember the story? You see, they were good ground. But they were fallow. The seed wasn't being sown. So he says, break up the ground. Get it ready for the seed. Now, for us as Christians, we're good ground. Amen? We're good ground. But let me ask you a question directed towards all of us. How do you view the Bible? How do you view the seed? Is it just one book among many books that you could read? Is it something that you could take or perhaps leave? Is it something that you treasure or something that's just, well, just one small part of my life? If we look at the Bible from the negative side, we're what? We're fallow ground. We're fallow ground. We're good ground and the potential is there. But it's not being broken up. It's not being seeded with the Word of God. Then, the second thing he says in verse 3 is do not sow among the thorns. This is different. This is different. Do not sow among the thorns. Now, you remember in the parable, the thorns represent what? The cares of this world and what? The, the deceitfulness of riches. He says, don't, don't sow among the thorns. Why? Because it chokes out. The weeds take over and there's, it kind of chokes out. So he tells them, don't sow among the thorns. Now I came across a, a prayer of a man whose seed has been sown and he's kind of thorny ground. Let me read this prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray my cousinart to keep I pray my stocks are on the rise and that my analyst is wise, that all the wine I sip is white and my hot tub's water tight, that racquetball won't get too tough, that all my sushi's fresh enough. I pray my cell phone still works and my career won't lose its perks, my microwave won't radiate, my condo won't depreciate. I pray my health club doesn't close, that my money market grows. And if I go broke before I wake, I pray my Volvo they won't take. It's a man or a woman who's had the word of God sown in their heart and their heart is representing soil with thorns, choking out the word. Now when I plant my garden, you knew this was coming. The most important thing is the soil preparation. Many times, uh, I'll take the byproduct of my crops and I'll cut them up small. And I'll dig a ditch and I'll bury them in there. And I'll cover them over with soil. So that when I turn over the soil several months ago, what do I get? I get rich, dark, black soil. 
I get all the weeds out, take all the weeds out, and I roll that soil over with my shovel, rolling it over. Why do I do it? Why do I take all that time? Add some mulch and stuff into that. Why do I do that? Listen carefully. The quantity and the quality of the produce of that land, of that soil, is directly proportional to what? The kind of soil that I plant the seed or the seedlings in. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Prepare. Because it's the ground. Your heart. Turn it over so that it's ready to receive the seed. Don't plant in a life that's all concerned about the cares of this world and the love of riches. So, put away the detested things, plow so there's good fruit. And then finally in verse 4, he tells us, circumcise yourself spiritually. Circumcise yourself spiritually. Once again, there's two distinct elements he's talking here. Notice what he says. Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Circumcise yourself to the Lord. What is he saying? He says, separate yourself to the Lord. Now, the mark of circumcision for the Jewish people was what? It was a mark on all the males that would say what? That they are different, listen carefully, that they are different from all the pagan nations around them. That's what it was saying. Circumcision was a mark that they were the servants of who? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was a sign. It was the covenant sign that they were different. Now remember the story? Israel was in in the wilderness 40 years. And all the men who were born during those times... We're not circumcised. They crossed the Jericho River, uh, the Jordan River, and they were getting ready to face Jericho. And what happened? God called Joshua. I want you to do what? To all the men. I want you to circumcise them. Why? So they would be distinct and different from all the pagan people that were inhabiting the land of Canaan at that time. It was a mark that they were, the believers of that day were to be separate and distinct from the unbelievers. Now, that's true for us today, isn't it? Isn't it? We're supposed to be different, but seem to be blended now. The number of divorces in the church is almost the same as the number of the people who don't know the Lord. The number of people who have abortions is the same. Almost the same. The same percentage. People who are involved in sexual immorality. It's almost the same. And even we've even gone so far as well. We're, we're thinking of how we can alter, how, listen carefully, how we can alter our worship services that, so that the unbelievers who come in may somehow feel comfortable and at home. Wait a minute, wait a minute. We don't want to be, we don't want to be distasteful or arrogant or hateful against people who don't know the Lord. We want them to be, feel welcomed in our church. But remember what the Bible says about unbelievers? What does it say? Their eyes are blinded by the God of this world. And they're held captive by Him. Why should that kind of mindset determine what we do in this building? What, are we crazy? Of course we want to make them feel welcome and they're all, everyone's welcome here. But we're supposed to be what? Separate. Different. Let me read you a scripture. 1 Peter... Chapter 3. Here's what Peter says. But sanctify, or what? Set apart Christ 
as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the things in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. What is he saying? Live the kind of life so that people say to you and to me, why are you doing that? You're so different from all the unsaved people I know. Why are you that way? And then when they ask you a question, you tell them what? The hope that is in you is who? Jesus. You tell them about Jesus. However, if you're no different, if I'm no different from them, that question will not be asked. Circumcise yourself to the Lord. We're to be different. We're to be different. Now, last part really quickly. He says, remove. Now, he, he is talking about we're supposed to be different in word, thought, and deed. Then he goes on. Notice what he says in second half of verse 4. He says, and remove the foreskins of your heart. Oh, what's that? Well, maybe we can learn something from Romans because Paul talks about that. Romans chapter 2. Paul is speaking about to the Jews of that day. And look what he says. In Romans 2.28. You don't have to turn there. Let me read it. But if you want, you can. Romans 2.28. For he is not a Jew who is just one outwardly. Neither is circumcision that which is the outward of the flesh. So he's saying, just because you've been circumcised doesn't mean you're a child of Abraham. Okay, he goes on. Here's the true circumcision. Look what it says. But he who is a Jew is one inwardly And the circumcision is that of the heart. The heart. By the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So what is is Jeremiah saying to us when he, he says, remove the foreskin of your heart? We have to go back to the story of Abraham to kind of explain this. Remember Abraham? He was 99 years old. The Lord had promised him what? A child. But years had gone by. The promise had not been fulfilled. Now, 14 years before, him and Sarah had done it the world's way. Remember the Hagar and the Ishmael thing, that disaster. They tried man's way. That was the common custom of the day. You couldn't have a child, get your handmaid, and then you can have a child through your handmaid. No, 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 that was a disaster. So at 99, here he is. The promise is being fulfilled. He says, very soon, you're going to have a child. But what does he call him at that moment, at that 99 years old, what does he call Abraham to do? Circumcise himself. What? 99 years old? I haven't had a child. And my only hope of childhood is in this certain portion of my body. And you are asking me to touch that? And he says, yes. Why? Because is it physical? No, 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 no. It's nothing to do with physical. It's got everything to do with him trusting the Lord for that very sensitive, tender part of his life that God even would let him have a child. He would trust him with this very, very sensitive part of his life. Would you, he's saying to Abraham, 
Allow me to enter in to the very private part of your life. Will you trust me with this? Remove the foreskin of your heart. Because it's not through your physical that I'm going to bring this child, but it's through the promise of God. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Now, what is he calling the people of Jeremiah's day to do? Well, as we read the book of Jeremiah, we'll find out that the Lord tells the people of Israel, I've determined from the time of Manasseh that I'm going to discipline Judah and Jerusalem. I will, I'm going to do that, no matter what you do. And towards the end of the book of Jeremiah, we'll find out that what he's going to tell the people of Jerusalem is this. He is going to say, Open the gates of Jerusalem and surrender. Let them come in and take the city. What? Our precious city of Jerusalem? Yes. Trust me. What? Let them take the temple? Yes. Trust me. Let them take us captive to Babylon? Yes. Trust me. Remove the foreskins of your heart. This precious promise? Yes. This is the way I want you to go. Trust me. How about for us? What's the application? Perhaps there's goals. There's things that we have in our heart. Longings that maybe we've never expressed that we'd long for the Lord to do. And He's telling us, Will you allow me to touch that part of your life? Will you trust me with this? Will you trust me? Will you remove the for- your protection? You're protecting that part? Let me touch it. Let me heal it. Will you trust me? Put away your detested things. Plow so there's good fruit. Circumcise yourself spiritually. You can come back. Here's the passage. Here's the road. I came across a story of a husband and wife who were in birthing classes, their first child. They're in the hospital and they're doing the birthing classes. And one of the, um, one of the nights, they take them through the maternity ward and they kind of show them everything that's happening. Many of us have done that. And they announce to them that on the last night of their stay in the hospital, after their baby's been born, they'll have a special dinner at, in their room. Special dinner for them. And that's really exciting. And they kind of gave them the menu selections. And so as they're going through the maternity ward, the wife is getting more and more excited. She's just getting really excited. And she whispers to her honey, and she says, Oh, honey, I'm getting so excited about our first child. And he says, after a moment, he says, Me too. I'm going to select the lobster. (laughs) Now, what does that say? Our perspective is always different. Your perspective is different from your husband's. That's just the way we are. But I can tell you one thing. Of everyone in this room today, you want the good life that the Lord has for you. Don't you? Isn't that true? You might see it in different lights. You might hear a perspective with different... But every one of us long for the blessings of God. Long for the goodness of God in our lives. 
The people of Jerusalem, they wanted the same thing. They wanted the goodness of the Lord. But they were going the wrong way. And he calls them. This is the way back. This is the way back. I pray that each one of us might heed the words of the prophet Jeremiah as he calls us, come back. This is the way. This is the way that you find the blessings of God in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful book of Jeremiah and the the nuggets that we can find here that speak to our hearts. May the goodness of God and his love draw us back to him each day, each week, each month, and each year. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me this morning. There will be a time of prayer this morning. Perhaps... uh, You've been going the wrong direction. You want the goodness of the Lord, but you've been heading in the wrong direction. Today is the day. Come forward. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you. We'd like to help you in this journey back to the Lord. If you find yourself in a place where you need prayer, there'll be some men, some ladies, some pastors. We'd love to pray for you.